0: Ukraine is really quite essential to the narrative that Putin in particular has pushed about who Russia is, what its role in the world is. People think there is like a true version of history that has to be established, and when you establish that then you'll understand like world events now and also what were led up to so them, you'll have the correct worldview. And so what Russia's doing is not stopping Ukraine from being Ukrainian. There is no such thing as Ukraine in this version. What it's doing is saving them and bringing them back to being Russian.
1: Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, editorial director at MWI. And in this episode, you'll hear a discussion I recently had with Dr. Jade McGlynn. She is a postdoctoral fellow in the War Studies Department at King's College London. And she is also the author of two new books about Russia, One of them is called Memory Makers and it describes how Russia's history is treated in the country and often used politically. The second book, Russia's War, really builds on that research and applies it specifically to the war in Ukraine. As she explains, for many Russians, how they feel and what they believe about the war aren't just a matter of government control of the media or not having access to alternative sources of information. It's much more complicated than that. There are complex layers of history and national identity and narratives that combine to form a sort of filter through which the war is understood. So while many in the West see the war as a blatant act of aggression by Russia, Russians are effectively watching a different war entirely. It's a really interesting discussion packed with important insights, but before we get to it, a couple notes. First, if you're not yet subscribed to the MWI Podcast, you can find it on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Dr. Jade McGlynn. Jade, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Modern War Institute podcast.
0: Thank you for inviting me.
1: So you are the author of uh, two recent books. One is called Russia's War, and the other is called Memory Makers: The Politics of the Past in Putin's Russia. Um, rather incredibly, both were published this year in in twenty twenty three, which is uh, quite an accomplishment. Uh, we'll probably touch on you know maybe some of the themes uh, from Memory Makers, uh, but principally I'd like to focus on the other book, Russia's War. Uh, it is about how Russians. Perceive the war in Ukraine and their role in it and their sort of identity with respect to the war uh, which which uh, is in pretty stark contrast to the way that they 're sort of conceptualized in in the the dominant narrative that most of us are are accustomed to. Uh, that book was published in March of this year, uh, barely a year after the invasion, which again itself is an incredible accomplishment. Uh, anybody with experience in the publishing industry. Uh, knows that it can sometimes take a long, long time to get a book out. So I imagine that it's the product of uh, a number of very long days uh, sat at a computer uh, for you. So congratulations for uh, for both books, really.
0: Oh, thank you. I think, um, I mean, it looks better than it actually is because, I mean, I took about eight, nine years to write Memory Makers. It just so happened to come out at the same time. And Russia's War was only possible to write that quickly because of Memory Makers, because of all the the sort of the research that had touched on these questions but wasn't really relevant to the exact key theme I was exploring in Memory Makers but I kind of I had the material and I had the the respondents I suppose you know the Russian people who who advisedly or not still speak to me um, so it looks better than it is.
1: <laughs> well as I said it's an accomplishment uh, nonetheless and actually that's a really good sort of Um, segue into, you know, to kind of kick off the the conversation, because you've been working on this book, Memory Makers, you said for eight or nine years, uh, Russia invades February 24th, 2022. At what point, you know, how long into the war was it uh, that you sort of, um, you know, you took note of this different narrative that's emerging within Russia uh, and say, you know, there's a book to be written about this specifically?
0: I, it didn't really happen like that because I'd been following the narrative about the war since 2014. So it wasn't that the narrative didn't really seem that different to me. And I was kind of surprised that it was different to so many people. Um, and that people were saying, oh, what's all this nonsense about Nazis? And you're like, they've been saying this since at least 2014, 2013 during Euromaidan and Revolution of Dignity. So I there was this whole sort of backdrop because my research has always been focused really, well, it was sparked by Russia's um, initial um, invasion of Ukraine in 2014, its initial aggression against Ukraine. So I, I felt like I had all of this information that actually had been sort of secondary information that I needed to have in order to do my PhD to write Memory Makers. But but all of a sudden there it was and it wasn't secondary information. It was actually pretty, pretty crucial to explaining to people. That said, in terms of writing the book, I mean, a useful contextual piece of information is that I just had a baby who turned two months on the day of the full-scale invasion. So uh-huh. I couldn't really do anything that useful. But, I mean, physically, I couldn't go to the baby didn't want to go <laughs> to the Polish-Ukrainian border. <laughs> <laughs> she was quite she was quite adamant about that. And so as selfish as it sounds, in part, it was just to give me something to do that I felt was useful because I really, other than like some some kind of fundraising things, and I'm not a great kind of activist person anyway, um, it was a way for me to order some of my thoughts because these are questions that I've been thinking about For a really long time, and then um, it had come to, you know, uh, just very horrific. um, Well, not de Nieuwmont, sadly, but certainly a a, a shift.
1: So, can you describe? You know, as you mentioned, rightly so, um, because I think we do sometimes get into the fall into the habit of talking about this war as if it began on February twenty fourth. Of last year, um, and I think the Ukrainians are very good at reminding us. Uh, you know, they often refer to it as the latest invasion, the latest Russian invasion. To to understand that it took place in this much broader context over now almost a decade, and you know, arguably even some some machinations and and activities prior to that, prior to 2014. But if you can kind of, you've been watching this narrative sort of take shape for a long time. Can you kind of describe what the key features? You mentioned Nazis, for instance. We, mm-hmm. We've we heard that. We heard that, you know, in the very first speech when Putin announced, you know, on conducting a special military operation in Ukraine, he he talked about Ukraine being kind of in the grasp of this far right, nazi element what else sort of are the main features of 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 that that narrative mm-hmm.
0: with the nazi element what's interesting is that the term nazi isn't used so often in the russian content it, i mean sometimes it is but mainly the term they use is banderivsy which is a term for the followers of stepan bandera who was a ukrainian nationalist leader during um the second world war whose followers um some of whose followers fought with the nazis not not all but some of whom did collaborate with the Nazis and Stefan Bandera himself I think is pretty obvious you can read his writings is pretty obviously a fascist Um. so that's that's one aspect and the reason why that's an important differentiation is because it ties into this notion of Ukrainian betrayal which is quite a common theme in Russian depictions of Ukrainians whether or not it's you know there are different historical figures that they use but it's this kind of idea that Ukrainians are Russians, they belong with Russians, they are Russians in in this view, and yet they've been, the West has sort of come up with this fake artificial Ukrainian identity and is using Ukraine as an anti-Russia. And so what Russia's doing is not stopping Ukraine from being Ukrainian. There is no such thing as Ukraine in this version. What it's doing is saving them and bringing them back to being Russian. But at the same point as having this sort of narrative where essentially then, and we've seen this in in some of the more infamous kind of op-eds written by those close to the Kremlin, such as Sevgyev last year in April, um, you get to the point where then to be a Ukrainian, i.e. to speak Ukrainian, to really... I mean, of course, you don't have to... Some people are native Russian speakers and are, are still Ukrainians, but to have those attributes of Ukrainian identity is in the Russian view, therefore, to be a Nazi or to be a a Banderite, to be an extreme nationalist. But also at the same point as having this element, we have the fact that the war, or as they call it in Russia, still the special military operation is seen as part of a bigger second war with the West against essentially for power and influence in the new multipolar world order. That's well, not so much emerging as emergent (laughs) with us. And so this is also part of Russia staking its claim to be a major pole of, of power with a decisive role over European security. And I have to say, I'm not, I'm not, I mean, you don't have to like Ukraine to not be overjoyed at the prospect of Russia having a decisive role over European security.
1: Is it, um, you know, specifically the war in Ukraine, is it characterized, you said it's it's part of a broader conflict, you know, competition uh, with the West, is it treated as a necessary part of that? I mean, presumably a Russian can can accept that there is this broader conflict with the West, but not accept the strategic wisdom of invading Ukraine last Mm -hmm. year, or or is it treated as such?
0: So I think many um, Russians are not especially um, enamored of the strategic importance of, of going into Ukraine. Um, and I mean, that's a different part of the conversation, really, about the passivity of the Russian populace and to what extent we're talking about support or we're talking about um, an acquiescence, really, to what the government's doing. But um, the thing with Ukraine is, as opposed to perhaps Georgia or even Transnistria, you know, and, and Russia's other of a sort of uh, military escapades. Ukraine is really quite essential to the narrative that Russia, that Putin Putin in particular has pushed, but that has really been co-created between the state and society about who Russia is, what its role in the world is, um, what its history is, why it is, like, why is it a nation? Why does Russia exist? And I mean, every country has these, and they're important. The American one is pretty well known, Britain, obviously, every single country has one. But for Russia, it's very dependent on being able to control Ukraine. That didn't necessarily have to be militarily. We've seen dip- Russia has had different approaches to controlling Ukraine over the centuries, often military, but not always. Um, but for various reasons, Putin clearly felt that he had the only choice left to him to ensure political control over Ukraine was um, a full scale invasion that clearly has not gone to plan.
1: You know, I hesitate almost sometimes to. Um, I don't know that narrative is the is the best word to use. It's mm-hmm. the one that I keep going to because it's the best one I've come up with so far. But a narrative is is you know just a story. We're talking about sort of deep seated sense of identity and mm-hmm. and and things that may kind of go beyond just the narrative. You you I think you brought up an interesting point is you know the, about the question of whether or not you know, this is Russians support for Putin in the war or acquiescence, um, which is it, you know, because I think this is a really Im- important point to what degree is this narrative accepted as, as fact and, and, you know, or how much of it is we really have no other choice. We live in uh, an authoritarian mm-hmm. state. We're voicing oh. any sort of opposition gets you in trouble.
0: I didn't mean acquiescence actually in the second term as in acquiescence out of fear, okay. um, though, though that does, there is a segment of society for whom that is very true and on different levels that, that of course plays an important role. So the first thing is I don't, we're not really talking, I mean, for my research for the book, one of the key things that came across is we're really not talking about one narrative there are core things that hold the different narratives together so his core points of, of the story if we will or core points of the world view that russia needs a strong state that um ukraine is russian um that the west is always out to get russia um that russia you know is this special civilization that has is especially kind and generous and has all of these wonderful things to bring to the world they're sort of underneath all of them, but it's tailored. So if you look on some of the channels which which are more sort of off, more geared towards people who care about traditional values, orthodoxy, they might have a certain approach that will focus on Ukrainian paganism, for example, or, um, you know, the... Um, the crackdowns that ukraine has made on the moscow patriarchate so the part of the ukrainian orthodox church that remains loyal to moscow and mm-hmm. some of whom have been involved in um, collaboration with the occupying forces whereas if you read some of the more tabloids or for example let's say something like comes moscow pravda there you see much more of an appeal to like soviet um i suppose what we might call sovietist values um, and to the the sort of the the Soviet past and the so and Soviet nostalgia for younger people often it's quite flashy. It's you get this impression of like wow you know like oh these guys are cool and they're off you know saving people but also like killing bad guys and so they they're quite good at tailoring it to different audiences and I think television is obviously one thing it's aimed at an older demographic but on Telegram there you can see some of the the diversity. In terms of whether or not people truly deep down support it, I suppose, I think in some ways, it's a bit of a moral distinction. I mean, I don't know about you, but for me, I'm not always 100% sure <laughs> what I think and what I truly believe, or and it changes. And it, I mean, clearly, there are certain things. I mean, I'm very certain that I, I believe that Ukraine is entirely innocent and that Russia should leave, for example. But it's not always so clear cut, especially if people maybe aren't as political or don't think as politically as, 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 as perhaps you and I do and in a country where they've encouraged people to stay out of politics in return for at first increased wealth in terms of their living standards and then since 2012 the sense of belonging to a real great power that's back that's back off its knees etc and all of this language so I'm not that interested in the moral distinction I think we have to look at what's at what are people actually doing and what we see is that this clearly is not Putin's war, because Putin is not on the front. Putin is not doing the lighting and the makeup for the propagandists who come on and say to drown Ukrainian children. Putin is not building the missiles in the many, many factories. Putin is not um, helping to draw up the trade agreements with North Korea or with Iran that get the equipment through. Putin not driving the buses that deport the Ukrainian orphans or disabled children that, bluntly, nobody is going to come for. Um, so this is not This is not just um, happening because people are are frightened. People are actively taking part in it. And I have a lot of sympathy for people who are frightened, but I think we also have to bear in mind that it's a lot to stand up to the Russian state, but it's not quite as much as standing up to the Russian army when they're there to kill you. So whilst I wouldn't have the right to make those demands of Russians, I, I think Ukrainians do.
1: Yeah, that's an excellent point. You mentioned, um, you know, you mentioned the tablet, the different sort of venues, the different sort of media um, that all mm. kind of play a role in, in in advancing this, you know, broad set of ideas. Um, I want to ask you about that. The, you know, Catherine Belton, a journalist, wrote a phenomenal book um, that it came out a year or two ago, I guess, I think, called Putin's People. And one of the things it talks about is is how Putin gained control of all sorts of different aspects of Russian society, but including the media. Um, On behalf of the state how you know how what are can you talk a little bit more about those various sort of information pathways that that help promote this this set of ideas this narrative uh and also how you know sure the kremlin exercises a degree of authority over a a lot of various media outlets and things like that but in the age of the internet and granted you know in russia it's not an entirely free flow of information but there is you know, there are, are, are mm-hmm. counter sort of narratives out there. There are that information is accessible to some. How is, you know, how is, I guess, how is the narrative protected against that?
0: Yeah. So um, this is a really key point because sometimes you even still now get people saying, oh, if only Russians knew what was happening. You think, okay. I mean, Telegram is essentially uncensored in the sense that you can read whatever you like. There's lots of Russian opposition media on there. I mean, you um, it's and of course you know you can read other media should you have foreign language and what's interesting is that in some polling recently done by open minds institute which focuses on online responses it showed that people who are more kind of loyal to the kremlin or happy to go along with the war put it that way so they support it but they probably wouldn't go and fight in it um in russia they actually have some of the highest levels of english language so um The notion that if only the Russians know that's that's not going to get us anywhere in terms of how it works. So for television, um, that's state controlled or owned by um, most often it's owned by um, Kremlin friendly businessmen. And it was taken over in the uh, in the, uh, in the early 2000s when it's one of the first things Putin did really on coming to power. And. But even still there, there's some interesting discrepancies. So, for example, most of the television stations are still dependent on advertising. It's only the Russia selection of of channels that is fully kind of state funded. And the others, they rely on advertising. So what we saw is that at first, just as in 2014, people wanted to watch these kind of ghastly political discussion shows, um, which are ironically, I appreciate this might be a controversial point, Uh, in America, but um, they are ironically modeled on Fox News, though, of Mm -hmm. course, have taken their own national Russian idiosyncrasies and and really really run with the baton there. (laughs) But um, they were very popular at first, just as in 2014, which is when this format really came into its own. But after the call for mobilization in September in Russia, then people started to switch off. They didn't want to watch about the war. It become a bit too real for them. It become not a special military operation over there, but a war in which their brothers or their sons or their husbands might die. So people started to switch off, and of course, for the TV channels, that's bad because they need advertising revenue. And so, what did the TV channels do? They responded by putting on more soaps and ser- like television kind of uh, television series sure. um, soap opera sort of things films basically more escapism content and if you compare viewing figures across 2020, 2021 to 2022 and then 2022 to 2023 it's basically the first bit of the war the second bit of the war so far you see that россия Idine drops I think for the first time um, in many, many years, dropped out of the top three most watched channels because it doesn't do that because it's state funded. And actually the channels that go up and replace it are entertainment channels, stations that, that look. So there's always this, in, there's still this interaction with demand. We're not talking about, I mean, there are different definitions of totalitarian, but if we say something like North Korea, we're really not talking about a state like that. And that's just television, which really is very controlled. If we get to, and they really work from like, you know, key points that they're given basically by the presidential administration. When we get to Telegram, then it's really interesting because, like I said, people can watch it. I mean, 60 million Russians use Telegram every day. Um, The most, the vast majority of people use it not to message each other, because it's like a mix between Twitter and and WhatsApp, really, Um, not to message each other, but to follow news. And if we look at the top 30 political channels, In the Russian sort of language space, 24 of those are pro war. Hmm. So that then begs the question of sure, propaganda works because it has a platform, you have to hear it, but at the same point, why are people tuning in? Why do people want to hear that? What need is that appealing to? Like, I've watched an awful lot of Russian TV in my life, you know, an incredible amount, and yet I don't believe it. And that's not because, oh, I'm watching just as much BBC. I very rarely actually watch or, or engage with Western media so much because I'm interested in Russia Ukraine. So I read Russian Ukraine news sources. But there has to be that resonance with a worldview, with a way of seeing the world. And that's a much more complicated picture to get into. But it's an important one because if we just go and say, oh, you know, well, you can be friends with the West again lots of russians or lots of polls suggest that russians do want democracy but they really don't want a pro-western government so there are all of these different nuances and um you know not not everybody is always like we think we are and to be honest with you a lot of the time talking about britain we're not even like we think we are so
1: you mentioned that you know and i think you're right a lot of people just kind of wish Oh, if Russians were presented with all the information of what's going on, you know, they would see the war for what it is and, and change their minds in terms of whether or not they support the, the Putin regime and, and, and these activities, if that's not the case, is there anything that can be done from, from kind of a Western policy perspective, you know, in, in, during the cold war, we had radio free Europe and, and, and voice of America and, and, uh, and other initiatives, the BBC, um, you know, that, that Sort of existed in large part to present uh, this other perspective to kind of introduce these ideas across across borders. If if that if the, those borders are no longer sort of um, you know if they're if they're relatively porous and this information is already getting in, is there anything that can be done from a policy perspective to sort of challenge that narrative inside Russia?
0: Well, there, again, because there are lots of different narratives, you'd need to sort of challenge them all. And to be honest with you look I think there are things that can be done I'm a bit skeptical whilst I think that western or you know um western countries especially the U.S. has the funds to be able to support important initiatives that could perhaps work to change people's minds or to push them towards a more useful information outcome let's put it that way um for for our interests I think there's been such a Downgrading of expertise, particularly on mainstream sort of Russian culture, mainstream Russian thinking, as opposed to kind of Russian liberals who we're much more likely to meet, who who you know are also important but are really not very representative um, of of the country at large. That I would worry about that being a UK or a US or a Western Europe led effort. I think that probably probably you'd want. I mean, people who understood Russia better, either Russians themselves, if they were willing to engage in creating those sorts of narratives or, or, you know, Ukrainians have a pretty good understanding of Russians, but there's a lot to ask of them and they've got bigger priorities. I think in general, the focus on Russia, like how do we change Russia, I think it's a bit misplaced. I think Russia has to change itself. that has to come internally. And I'm not convinced, just like in 1917, the Russian civil war wasn't between like Kerensky's liberals or Martov's sort of nice Mensheviks. It was between some pretty horrible, kind of monarchist or you know, extreme nationalist guys, and the Bolsheviks. I think that that will be the next political um, conflict when politics does return, because Putin's mortal term has to end, even if his presidential one feels like it might <laughs> not. So, I think there is that aspect. In general, I guess from a policy point of view, my general advice is, or my current position and. You know, obviously they always have to be challenged and changed, I'm not saying it's perfect but it's really to have some form of an official divestment from anything to do with the Russian state accompanied by visas um, for those who are at risk in Russia because of their political views, because of their support for Ukraine or their um, protesting or actions against the war and then instead of thinking how do we change Russians' minds instead to focus on what we can do um, because we can't probably, it's very hard to change somebody's mind. It's very hard to understand how different people work. So instead it's best to, it's important to understand how it works, but it's that doesn't mean, okay, well then what can we do about it? But it's more just as a way of measuring different likelihoods or scenarios and to leave that to just understanding and instead focus on what we can control, which is helping Ukraine to win. Because the most likely thing to change Russian attitudes is a change in circumstances. That's always how most attitudes change.
1: Can I ask you about, um, you know, how this narrative within Russia or, you know, this paradigm, this mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. comprehensive set of ideas through which people sort of understand uh, what they're seeing. Can I ask you how you know, how certain events look through that paradigm. Mm-hmm. You mentioned mobilization, for instance, and how that mm-hmm. changed things because it kind of made the war, the war real in a sense for some mm-hmm. people. Um, what about in, in terms of the number of battlefield casualties? Because, you know, there's there's substantial scholarly literature about the casualty aversion in, you know, different types of states. Uh, it's, it's quite high levels of casualty aversion in democracies generally, uh, and lower in authoritarian states. Um, how has, you know, the, Russia has lost a lot of soldiers on the battlefield, um, service members on the battlefield. How has that sort of, how is that filtered through this paradigm uh, and how is it understood by Russians?
0: Mm-hmm. So the Kremlin's been very good. I mean, all armies do this to an extent, but it's been quite extreme um, during um, the, since the full scale invasion, the, the big war, the, the, as the Ukrainians call it, um, because they focused on pressuring the most dispossessed, the have-nots, the poorest people. And I know there's been a lot of discussion about like the ethnic makeup in the Western press, and that's understandable, but it is often mostly about socio-economic issues. And I think there's then a question of, okay, but why are all the people who are not ethnic Russians so poor? I think that's mm. probably the more interesting question. Um, but Yeah, so that's important for a couple of reasons. One is because they tried to... Mobilization, even in September, was really half-hearted in Moscow. Nobody... They were really protecting Moscow, protecting Petersburg, protecting a few other cities where they know that if they tried it, it could genuinely lead to a lot of unrest.
1: Half-hearted in what sense?
0: um, They didn't really send out the... um, uh, Like, the... like notices that you get, sure. I don't know, like a draft notice sure. or yeah, they like didn't send them out, notice. yeah, exactly and if people wanted to avoid it, they just could and of course people are richer in a lot of those cities so they can just buy a stomach problem or you know from mm. a doctor so that so it's mainly the poorer people and that's something that comes up a lot and I mean that was part of Progoians, the appeal of Progosian's arguments he was saying your sons are fighting. But their sons aren't fighting, their sons are off on yachts and they have these castles in the West. And yet you have like a small house and it's your son who's dying. And this isn't fair. Um, and we need to kind of change um, the setup. We need to. It wasn't an argument against the war. It was an argument against the way the war had been run. And that's increasingly quite a dominant position. And it could be turned against the war to that sense of, do you know what, we need to focus on Russian people. Um, we need to not be spending, not be, you know, sending Russian men to die. Um, we need to focus on our internal issues and make Russia better. Um, it, it could do that, or it could go in sort of more of the Z-blogger way of we need to fully mobilize and um, completely destroy Ukraine because the Kremlin has been too hesitant or too kind towards Ukrainians, which is a very prominent narrative um, among the Z-bloggers.
1: So has that, has the, the, you know, as casualties have mounted has it, you know, had a, a oh, measurable impact in terms of you know undermining the, the the Kremlin's narrative?
0: Not really, because most people are able to ignore it, um, and among those who aren't, particularly the mothers. Um, well, first of all, they're not admitting the losses, and a lot of people just don't know where their sons are or their husbands are, um, and there's a lot of pressure put on families to not kind of cause, make a scene. Some do. There was a case in Stavropol recently where the kind of local committee, I suppose, or organisation of, of mothers and wives of soldiers, where the gov- they were sort of asking the governor, okay, well, where are all of our, you know, relatives because we we've been seeing these reports from the front line again because of telegram you know that lots of people were were killed here and they were in that division etc etc and then he came out and called them a cipso which is like um ukrainian disinformation <laughs> campaign and that caused some outrage because of course but in general they the kremlin has been very good at co-opting creating like double organizations so organizations that look like they're kind of bona fide soldiers like mothers and wives but actually are um, just state creations or they have some kind of lackeys or stooges in them um, so there's been a careful management of this because they've learned the lessons of what happened in Afghanistan what happened in Chechnya and also a lot of the the mothers and wives they, they are busy trying to send things to their to their relatives because the soldiers don't have proper equipment or they're so busy in knots trying to, you know, tying themselves up in knots, trying to find where their family are. Um, for some, they appear not to care and they're quite happy with the um, the the grave money, the money you get when um, people have died. But, I mean, you have unhappy marriages in every country. So I wouldn't like overgeneralize that point.
1: What about, um, what about, the the sort of short lived rebellion by Prigozhin uh, mm. and his death how how have both of those two events sort of been characterized uh, in in this narrative?
0: So the death has largely been ignored on the state media on the television. They're of course discussed widely on um, on Telegram. that nothing has really come of it, um, mainly because I think the Wagner fighters families themselves haven't really wanted anything to come of it. Um, perhaps for obvious reasons, out of fear. Um, in terms of the mu- the rebellion itself, it was covered in a very weird way on television. Again, it was very hard to understand what's happening. Similarly, from official sources, um, lots of people were very confused um, following the mutiny. Um, if you looked at local sources, just because I spent a lot of time in, in Varonezh, which was one of the, they didn't take the city, but they took the, the region. Um, in Baronezh and especially in, in Rostov, there, did, uh, there genuinely did appear to be quite an outpouring of, um, of sympathy for the Wagnerites. But that's not really so much because of who they were, but more because of the arguments Prudogoshin was making. People had started to project a sense of Wagner are for the people, they're from the people um the fact that they were prisoners in russian culture there's traditionally quite a lot of sympathy for prisoners i mean it's going way back into the tsarist times um so that wouldn't necessarily have too much of an effect for different cultural reasons um and people felt that they were kind of standing up for our boys so even if they didn't really agree with what they were doing they had some sympathy for them they saw them as sort of as ours as as their own um and the issue that the Kremlin has now is fine, it's resolved Prigozhin, right? I mean, literally, Prigozhin does not exist now, unless he's somewhere, you know, <laughs> gone hidden as some of the conspiracies say, but um, let's presume they're wrong. Um, is They've resolved Prigozhin, the issue, but they haven't resolved what Prigozhin appealed to. And even after a real state propaganda onslaught against Prigozhin following the mutiny, he still remained popular among men, aged 18 to 40, which is a pretty important demographic if you need to mobilise young men for a war. And he was able to do that. Um, he he was able to cut through to the audience, which the Kremlin struggles to cut through to. And, and also those people who, he is also popular among those people who had fought or had direct connections to those who had fought in the so-called special military operation, because that allowed because they had experienced these things. They knew they were true. They knew the Ministry of Defence wasn't looking after people. And since there hasn't been any real reform and there probably won't be of the Ministry of Defence, it's very hard to see how, um, how that problem won't continue to grow. But again, that will be a problem that then turns into Russians have been betrayed um, or the Ministry of Defence aren't doing it right rather than, do you know what, let's give liberal democracy and being friendly with America a
1: So there's one more thing that I want to ask. We're kind of looking, looking back a little bit farther in time, you know, this, this paradigm. It didn't just take shape, obviously, in the past handful of years. Certainly, its application to Ukraine has has really been in place at least since 2014. But it also has fairly deep roots, and and presumably has framed Russians' perspectives on events, uh, uh, you know, for some time, going back even further. So, I'm curious how it applies uh, to cases when you know when Western leaders uh, make public statements. You know, if officials in Washington or London or Brussels or Berlin say, "Hey, you know, look." Russia's clearly a threat and and needs to be dealt with. It's it's pretty easy I think uh for the Putin regime to kind of fit that into the narrative of, you know, hey, listen to these aggressive statements. It's proof that 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 they are trying to undermine us. But what about, you know, again pre-2014 um I'm thinking specifically of, you know, the now infamous reset button during the during the Obama administration. There's obviously not a lot of it now, but You know, there was a time not that long ago when Western leaders were, you know, actively working to improve relations with Russia. I'm curious how how that uh, fit within this, you know, again, this set of narratives.
0: Yeah, so I mean, it largely is just the reset itself is largely ignored. Um, Obama is treated very badly um in terms of um how he's sort of remembered or discussed in the russian press it's always been that way a large part of it is is racism i remember in moscow once uh, one of my rest favorite restaurants was near the u.s embassy and walking by and they projected they were projecting images of bananas um as as a form of, of racism comparing obama to a monkey um, so racism has always played quite an important role actually in the particular sort of um vitriol towards towards Obama. But in general, yes, they don't remember. And I think there are a few points that kind of come in here. So first of all, is the Russian obsession um, with colour revolutions, the idea that the US is funding and manufacturing popular revolutions um, against legitimate regimes, particularly in Eastern Europe. And that's the kind of some people argue that the fall of the Soviet Union was the initial color revolution, but most people date it to the, the NATO bombing of Yugoslavia or rump Yugoslavia um, in 1999 and, and Kosovo. And that's seen as a real turning point, um, quite literally, because you, often people refer to when Yevgeny Primakov, who was then the foreign minister, did a U-turn over the Atlantic. He was on his way to see the Americans and he when he heard of the NATO bombing of Serbia, he. of he, Rump Yugoslavia. He, he then turned his plane around midway over the Atlantic, and that's when seen as the starting point for, in these terms, Russia getting back off its knees. And if you look at the sort of the national security strategy, it's all very um, well. I don't want to say it's coherent because it's it reads quite quite unhinged, but it is quite coherent in terms of the, the way that this worldview, perhaps even ideology, has, has developed, um, or perhaps developed the worldview has developed into an ideology or a way of seeing the world, which is that um, America was dominant after the fall of the Soviet Union. It completely abused that dominance in Yugoslavia, in Iraq, in, in Libya. And now America and the Western world order is in decline, but that's why it's so dangerous. And that's why it's important that Russia kind of hits out now and um, establishes itself and also works to help other countries who have been culturally colonized. Uh, That's a term they use by America. And the notion there is essentially that um, America has tried to impose its values as if they were universal values and has asked, has tried to, rob countries of their traditions just like it did to russia but russia fought back
1: Hmm. you know i want to i guess kind of shift gear well kind of zoom out a little Mm -hmm. bit and and Mm -hmm. and turn to your other book memory makers Mm -hmm. um you know this is it's something it's a common feature of really i think all nations to varying degrees we all adopt sort of simplified versions of our histories that cast things in the best positive or the the most positive light and give us you know like you know cast our own sense of national identity in sometimes, you know, often better terms than maybe it would be otherwise, but certainly simpler <laughs> terms than it would be otherwise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, is you know what makes the way uh, the past and 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 Russia's history is politicized? What makes it different in Russia than 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 other states?
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, in some ways, I'm not sure it's different. It's just a question of intensity. You know, in the same way that. I mean, in a really simple analogy, like it's okay to eat chocolate. It's just if you start eating chocolate for like breakfast, lunch and dinner, that it becomes a huge problem. Um, So every country does this. Some countries do it more than others. To be honest, for you, Britain in particular, I mean, sometimes I felt very hypocritical as a Brit sitting and writing a book often touched on Russia's uses and um, ahistorical myths about World War Two, because I could very easily have written a book about the UK same uses, but there's, there is a difference. And one of the differences, of course, is the, um, is the way that it's used, because we're not really talking about how people remember it. We're talking, or I'm not writing so much about how people remember it. I'm talking about how people use it to justify the present and to create a sense of identity. And this is the use of history to create a sense of national identity across the, the post-communist world has been quite remarkable. And that's linked to you know, the loss of, I suppose, like a Marxist worldview or, or structure for understanding things, but um, still, in many places has been retained the the structure in the sense that people think there is like a true version of history that has to be established. And when you establish that, then you'll understand like world events now and also what, what led up to them, you'll have the correct worldview. Um, in Russia's case, Putin has really lent into it, um, particularly the use of the Great Patriotic War. So that's um, the Soviet war against Nazism from 1941 to 1945, which begins in 1941, because then you don't have to have the awkward questions about the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, And it's illegal, really. Well, it is illegal to discuss um, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact in any factual way. Hmm. Um, so that's another aspect is the use of these quite extreme um, so-called memory laws um, to outlaw certain things. Now as well, in particular, this has accelerated since um, in the last six months to, to nine months, the rewriting of history textbooks. So if previously history textbooks, you had a selection and of course they weren't exactly Um, paragons of of historical scholarship, though I'm not sure many school textbooks are. Um, you had a choice, and often a lot of research shows that in terms of the schooling, teachers had a lot of freedom in how they taught them. Whereas now there's a universal history textbook, it's much more propagandistic, um, much less concerned with history as a science as opposed to history as a form of, 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 Um, conducting politics so there are those those elements and also just the the sheer ubiquity of it to be honest especially if we talk about the great patriotic war cult absolutely Um, it's been inserted into almost every aspect of everyday life it's not just something that happens on 9th of may but instead you know you there's been campaigns to do murals to paint the metro carriages um and use them as almost like exhibitions of of world war ii films or other world war ii cultural products most of the um television series almost all of the new well-funded films have been focused on um the Great Patriotic War, you have after-school clubs, um, you, your summer camps, which I know are also popular in, in America. For example, what the most popular one is called Strana Geroyev, which means country of heroes, and there you can learn how to conduct historical disinformation campaigns against Western versions of history. So this is pretty intensive. And the problem, well, there are many problems of it, but one problem of it is that because the Great Patriotic War and the need to defend the memory of the Great Patriotic War has been such a core narrative around why Russia has had to intervene in Ukraine in 2014 and then the full-scale invasion to defend the memory of, of their ancestors who fought against Nazism. This all then mixes in and it becomes quite confused. So trying to destroy Ukrainian identity is becomes understood as we are defending our own identity, which the West is trying to destroy by you know, discrediting or overturning the memory of World War II and the Soviet victory in it. And they are using Ukraine to help them. And specifically, they are using Vanderevsi um, collaborators in, in this sense.
1: Well, Jade, I think uh, we're going to leave it there, uh, if that's right. This has been a fascinating uh, discussion. Again, uh, both books, uh, Russia's War is out uh, now by polity and memory makers from from Bloomsbury, I believe. Um, so thank you so much for joining me and and, uh, and for the, the fascinating insights. Oh thank you hey thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing if you aren't following MWI on social media you can find us on Twitter slash X Facebook or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, research, and more that we're publishing every day. Thanks again.